Turn to the 15th chapter of the book of Exodus. I'm not going to sing, as I said, but we are going to read a song of Moses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them, and they went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength in your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. And when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Denny. It's a joy to serve with you. And as we'll see from our passage, the quality of one's voice does not count when we sing to God, which is refreshing to many of us. So perhaps uh, there have been times in your life, maybe at least one, where you felt that you're in an impossibly difficult position with no way to get out, and that's a terrifying place to be. And that's precisely where we left off our uh, narrative in Exodus back before Advent. If you remember the story of Exodus, it's a very dramatic narrative about God bringing his people out of slavery. 
But you see, God made a promise when he established his people through Abraham that he's going to put them in the land, that they're going to be his people. But at the beginning of Exodus, that seems impossibly far away, that the Israelites are enslaved. They have no hope of extricating themselves from the situation in which they find themselves. And as it looks more promising, you remember at the beginning of Exodus chapter 14, things turn uh, to a very dire situation indeed. That Pharaoh, with the greatest weapons of war of that day, the chariots, on one side and the Red Sea on the other, you'll notice in 14 verse 3, there's a little line that I like, that that Israel, uh, they were shut in. That they were hemmed in. uh, Boxed in without any hope of getting out. You say again, that... It's much like what we read about and uh, or sing about in our songs. You remember that last song? We talked about a great chasm, right? A great chasm of how are we going to get across? Is there any hope in this? And you say, lo and behold, that's what God does in chapter 14. That he makes a way where there is no way, divides the sea, and brings his people through. Now, if you read this, you know, you're saying, what's this really about? It's about God being redeemer and liberator and promise keeper. That's what uh, we're supposed to learn from this, that in God there's freedom, that he's rescuing us, that he's establishing us by his might. Now, if you read this and you think it's only about ancient Near Eastern politics, I think people read that and say, well, this is a nice story and God's, you know, rescued Israel from Egypt. What I hope you see if you're a Christian is that this language is, is the same language you would use for what God has done in your life. That you're hemmed in by your, your own sin, that you, we all make choices in our folly and in our selfishness, that we are uh, you know, enslaved, to, to, so to speak. What hope do we have but for God to rescue us, to reach down, right? We're not going to crawl our way up to God, but he reaches across from the dark side and gives us a new heart and brings us to him in Jesus. See, that's why Exodus is so important. This is why all through the Bible, you're going to have echoes of it, because why? God has redeemed a people for himself. He's brought the people through and established them. Now, what's the response to this? And that's where we're going to park today in chapter 15, this miraculous, uh, marvelous redemption of the people. What kind of response does it demand? And chapter 15 shows us that the response is a song of celebration. You'll notice, chapter 15, our English editors do us a great service. Uh, Up to this point, you've noticed that the the text has been prose. It's been historical narrative. This is what happened. But you get to chapter 15, and you see the text is broken up in such a way it looks like a poem. See, that's exactly right. It's a song. That the people, having witnessed and experienced this salvation in God, break out into a song of celebration. You might wonder every week, you come in, you say, well, why is it that, you know, these Christians, uh, why is it that we sing? Or if you're new, you say, why is it these Christians sing? I hope in our moments together, you'll have a better view of what's happening and why we do it. And we'll do that by looking first at the forum of, of, of what's happening here. That is the uh, point of a song in and of itself. And then we'll look at the content, if that's okay. So first, God's uh, deliverance of the people demands a response, and they do so with a celebratory song. So let's unpack this for what it means for worship in our church, what it meant for the Israelites. So first, what do you think the tone of this was? What do you think the spirit of this song would be? See how it opens, right? I'll sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Now, yes, me, uh, just a guess here, but if you're singing this, uh, with Moses, it's probably not like this. I will sing to the Lord, for he's triumphed gloriously. In other words, it's not a solemn occasion. 
but it's a great joyful occasion. Say, can you believe? You could imagine looking over. Say, it wasn't that short time ago. We were on the other side. There was no way out. Best case scenario, more enslavement in Egypt. They would have been hauled back, right? More slave labor. That's what Pharaoh wanted. Best case scenario, slavery, likely for some, the grave. Couldn't get themselves out, but God wondrously, marvelously opens the sea and brings them through, and the Israelites celebrate what God has done. It's a cheerful tone. And so it ought to be for God's people that we celebrate what God has done for us. Also, crucially, say it's so obvious, but it's such an important point in where we find ourselves as American evangelicals these days. The song of the people is a result of what God did for them. It's not meant to generate an experience. You have some churches, and I, I get the impression, or even some worship leaders, I'm so thankful, Jim, by the way, just so solid in all these areas, wrote a great paper when, when he was candidating on all this. So the songs for a lot of people are a means of church to say, well, can we create energy? Can we manipulate the feelings of the people in such a way to, to help them to kind of, you know, want to come back to church? Can we generate an experience? See, I would argue that's primarily not, what, not what's happening when the people of God sing. The people of God are singing as a result of what God has done. They're praising him because of the great salvation. Now, there's nothing wrong with emotion. You know, I, after all, uh, after all my last name's Shaw. You say, I'm an Englishman. I know about the, you know, the stiff upper lip. You don't want to know overly emotional clergymen. And some of us are in that camp. So we don't want any of that emotion in here. You want to pause there and say, well, emotions uh, are important, a part of what it, it's an important part of what it means to be human. He said, I've met with enough men in my life who said, you know, the, the great sorrow they have because their own fathers were emotionally unavailable. See, emotion is not a bad thing at all. Uh, the point I'm driving at here is that you, you want to see that the singing in the church, the emotions that come, really are a result of the great work God has done for us, not something that we're manipulating each other into a feeling uh, so that we, we kind of have a, a brief spiritual high. So the song, and you'll notice the content right, of the song is, is very much uh, a retelling of chapter 14. This is what God did to the Israelites, so that the actual story is not advanced in chapter 15, but they repeat what God has done as a celebration as a result of their deliverance. Now, I do have one image of this happening as I was thinking this week. Say, you ever see anything like this? I do have one example, and that is in the English football leagues, that is soccer. Uh, I live in there long enough, especially the Welsh. If you know anyone who's Welsh, the Welsh are fantastic singers. And what would happen, the Welsh football team, Welsh soccer team would win a game, and uh, spontaneously the entire crowd, you watch this, you YouTube this, the entire crowd erupts in the anthem that they celebrate the great victory of the Welsh people. And I think that's a bit of what's happening in Exodus chapter 15. You say, they're looking, you say, can you believe what a great God we have? Let's celebrate him in song. And I think it goes without saying. You say, why is it, you know, what's the point of a song or a poem? Say, songs have a way of helping us remember the important things. That's why music is such a wonderful gift from God. You know, you have, a, you have a teenager, they don't remember a lot of what's going on at school, but they remember every, lyrics to the, you know, every lyric to the song. You see, there's something about how God made us to say music is a wonderful gift. Poetry is a wonderful gift, and it helps us remember and crystallize, and when we repeat that, it becomes a part of who we are. So here's Moses. He's leading the Israelites. 
Let's praise God for what he's done. It's a celebration of who he is. Now also notice who the song is directed towards. Another rub, if you will, with where we find ourselves in our culture. Everything about the song in chapter 15 is directed to God. It's about God, right? I will sing a song to the Lord. It's to please him. Notice all how many of the stanzas start. The Lord is my strength. The Lord is a man of war, right? In the greatness of your majesty, God, and so forth, that it's about God. Say, so why is that so stressed? Because again, in a very American fashion, what we figured out is say, well, actually, it might sell a little bit better if we can make ourselves the subject of the songs. Let's say all the good stuff that we're going to do, and this is who I am. You see, you always want to be careful when you, you want to get the balance right to say, I want most of the songs that the people sing to be about God and what he's done and his majesty and his attributes. Again, I thank Jim for doing such a good job with this that we tend not to sing songs about how we're feeling or what God has done. We tend to th sing songs about who he is, that it's about the Lord, the Lord and who he is. Now, notice too, the corporate dimension of this. So just kind of walking through the importance of song for the people. That there's always a corporate dimension to singing. That you look around the room and whatever disagreements you have, that as we belt out our hymns together, say when the church does this well, it is very moving, much greater even than a Welsh football game. You say when the church belts out the hymns, there's something about it because what's happening there? You're saying this is my family. And at that moment, say, when we're singing these hymns, I hope there's no, uh, no uh, stirring or even thought in your mind about the quality of your voice or anything to that nature. You might, not even, you might say, I don't even particularly like the tune of this song. It's not really a tune that I like. You say, that's not the purpose, is it? The purpose is to say, I'm linking arms with my brothers and sisters, and I'm declaring these truths about God for what he has done for us, and in all the chaos and the, the, the factions in the world and while we're at each other's throats, we come to the church and the people of God sing praises to God together because he's brought us here as brothers and sisters. You see too, and I point out worth mentioning at the end, say, why do we use instruments in the church? There have been movements in the church. Uh, they've been in error, in my opinion, who've said no instruments, it's a distraction. You say, well, that's not biblical. Say the, church, uh, the Bible is for instruments. You notice Miriam, Miriam the prophetess, first lady to get that title in the Bible, sister of Moses and Aaron. She grabs the tambourine and with great joy leads the singing with an instrument. So we use instruments in the church because God says, I've given you the gift of music, I've given you the ability to play instruments and I'm to be celebrated with instruments. And also on this point, this corporate dimension, use of instruments, talents, men and women singing together probably shocking to the original audience maybe when women are introduced as leaders you say well this is a wonderful thing men and women doing ministry together so look at the move we've made the song of the people is a result of what god has done not intended to manufacture emotions though there are emotions involved and that's a good thing secondly you'll notice it's directed to the lord it's about god's character not so much about our feelings but about god and then result what we are like thirdly it's corporate there's no status involved. We sing together. And finally, I'll just say this, that there's always in this uh, the personal dimension as well, and that is where we learn that the Lord is my strength and my song. That in that corporate dimension, each person has to realize in his or her heart what God has done for them.
say, yes, the Israelites came through as a group. They're established as a conglomerate, right? The, the assembled people of God. But each one of those Israelites also had to say, God, you took mercy on me. I hope that's you today if you're a Christian. Say, I love my church family. It's my brothers and sisters. We sing together. But what Jesus has done, he's done that for me. And he's looked down upon me and had mercy upon me. So God's people respond in song that this great deliverance that all of us who are in Christ have experienced, that we were hemmed in by our own sin, there's no way out. God rescued us. It demands a response. And we have a chance to do this in a very, uh, a very practical way each week when we sing together as God's people have always sung together. Now if we pivot, let's look now at the content of the song. What's the content of the song? First, the song praises God's power. That you can divide, really, the first uh, 12 verses about God's power and majesty and then a pivot at verse 13. That's what we'll do. But God's power is to be praised. And I think the point uh, really comes uh, very uh, in a clear point in verse 3. You see this? The Lord is a man of war. Now, a lot of preachers, they're not going to draw attention to that verse. Uh, version read earlier this morning had the Lord is a warrior. They say, for whatever reason, what was once a great celebration for God's people, you say they're singing this song. It's wonderful for the Israelites to think that, the God, uh, that God is a, is a warrior. But in our modern mindset, we've become very embarrassed by this. They say, well, we don't like to think of God as wiping out evil. But what I would challenge us to say is to think about how, uh, what, I, what strikes me as so odd about this is how in the hearts of the people, there is a very deep reaction of wanting evil to be defeated. You know, I know nothing. It's embarrassing, actually, how little I know about the, the superhero movies that have come out the last decade or so. So Pastor Caleb is helping me. He's giving me the order. I learned there's like 25 on the Marvel side alone. I'm like, not, you know, 2022, not going to happen this year. But I made a start over a break. I said, I'm going to watch the first Captain America. And what I find... You're watching Captain America, and what happens? You have something rise up in you. You say you're watching this very entertaining film. You say, I, I want them to get the bad guys. I, I want the, the evil to be crushed. You say there's a reason these films make all the millions and millions of dollars that they do. Because we all know deep inside of us, we look out at our world, and I say, I want somebody to deal with this. There's terrible things. I mean, human trafficking and, and, and uh, selfishness to scales that you know, hurt a lot of people. Say, is there somebody who can, who can deal with this? And then we read in our Bibles, well, the Lord's going to do something about it. We say, we, we, we don't like that. And I think that that's a real incongruity. I hope we're able to connect the dots to say, you know what? We all have a real sense of justice. And that that justice is met in the God of the Bible. And that's why the people of God can celebrate God is going to deal with evil. And if we're honest, the real problem, I think Oz Guinness, the sociologist, put his finger on this. Oz Guinness said this. He said, we live in a time when it's worse to judge evil than to do evil. See, I think that comes from our elimination of absolutes. Say, we don't like to call things categorically evil, and we certainly don't want to judge others because we're all individuals and we don't want to be. And, and that's a real problem because at the same time, we're looking out at the world, we say, somebody's, you know, we, we want this dealt with. And that's why the Israelites are, and I hope that we can recapture this to say it's never the responsibility of the church to uh, issue out justice. You know, who are we to do that? Say, we're not in position to judge others, but we can celebrate the fact that God deals with evil. You know, you think about the subject of, of chapter 15, the Egyptians, 
You say, think back of what we've been told so far. So Pharaoh is a bloodthirsty tyrant. He's enslaved hundreds of thousands of people. Say, I know how all of us feel about slavery now. Uh, He's called for an edict for the execution of small children. And he's been given, I don't know how many times, to repent and come to the true God. You say, if you're reading this, there's a reason Hollywood's made this into a film. What are you rooting for as you're watching this? You say, somebody get Pharaoh. He's such a terrible guy. And the Israelites have seen it. Say, there's a God. And he deals with evil. And no matter how discouraged you are with the world and the way things are going, there is a true God. And what we can do is uh, count on, uh, come to him through the mercy and grace that he's offered in Jesus. Now, along these lines to verse 9, you look at verse 9, major warning there. The enemy said, this is Pharaoh and the Egyptians, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. Say, why are they stack? Why in the song are we stacking up all these phrases? Say, this is about human presumption. This is something alive and well in each other. Uh, say, all of us have great plans, especially at the beginning of a new year. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to go out and make a name for myself, and I'm going to, and all this stuff's at my fingertips, and all's at my disposal. This is what I'm going to do. It's human presumption. And it's not godly because the reality comes in verse 10. You, God, blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. You see the contrast between 9 and 10. Human presumption, all the stuff I'm going to do and accomplish without God's help, just like Pharaoh. Verse the other line, how easy for God, using his wind. Don't you love that? His wind and his water. So very easy, just with a word. I think I mentioned a few weeks ago, I always like that parable in Luke's gospel. There's a guy who's had a good year financially, and he says, you know what I need to do? I'm going to take down my old barns because they're too small and not glamorous, and I need to build bigger barns for all my stuff. Come on, bring, let's build more buildings for all my stuff. And what happens? God says, well, buddy, you don't need to do that because today's your day. <laughs> you die today. They say it's a warning of human presumption. To say, wait a second, there's a way that a a man plans, and if we do that without thinking first of submitting to God and his kingdom and his righteousness, that it is folly. It's the same thing in James chapter 4. It's a warning against human presumption, and Pharaoh sets that example for us. All the things Pharaoh's going to do, not so fast, Pharaoh. And one word from God... And the whole thing changes. Now, all this, say God's power, right? His majesty. I think it comes to a peak. Really, the peak of the song is the peak of the theme of Exodus so far. Maybe you slept through these sermons in October and November. Please, please, now look at verse 11. This is the point of of Exodus so far. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your hand and the earth swallowed them. That's the great crescendo. Say, there's nobody like God. He's holy, and he's majestic. Now, this whole truth gives way to a very practical promise we see back in verse 2, that the Lord is our strength. Say, this great singing of God's power comes to the people of God by him being our strength. You know, I try to, in my emails, or you get a note from me, I, I typically will sign off something like, may the Lord Jesus be your strength. You say, you need, every person needs, uh, an immovable thing in their life. You say, maybe you're, you're young today, you don't think about that, so you've got a lot of protection, a lot of busyness, you know, your career's going like this. There comes a day 
Will you say, I need, I need a firm place for my feet. I need real guidance and real wisdom, not the world's wisdom. I need strength. And if you trace that theme in the Bible, how many times it says, the Lord Jesus is your strength. He's your rock. When the whole world gives way, right, everything gives way, say anywhere else you've put your hope and your faith, it will disappoint you, and consequently you'll be scared and anxious. And I hope today you see what God's people have always, always declared from the beginning. The Lord is my strength and my song. He is my salvation. When the whole earth gives way, I rely on him. He's consistent. He's guiding you. He cares for you. He's powerful and majestic. And that is why God's people celebrate. You're not a Christian today. I'm glad you're here. You say maybe you're home for the holidays, just joining your family. You say, I, you know, I, I don't know what to make of all this. I hope you see this. There is a source of real strength for this life. That you may say there are times you're putting your head down on the pillow at night and you're very sad and very worried about things. Quite frankly, if I didn't have Jesus, I'd be very sad and very worried about things. I really would. And I hope you might say, I, I don't need this now. Please think about this as things move forward to say, you know, I remember once hearing that, that the Lord is my strength that I can have assurance in who he is and what he's done for me as I surrender to him on his terms. And maybe you're there today. Maybe you're saying, you know, I'm a lot like these Egyptians and I'm hemmed in by my own sin. Everything I've tried to do is turning to mush. I realize I can't control the circumstances that I, I think I can control. Maybe today's the day where you say, you know what, God, I, I've sinned against you. I've done life on my own terms and I recognize in Jesus that you put him forth and I can surrender to him, acknowledging who you are, my creator and my sin and I can be right with you, and I can be a part of a church family, I can live a purpose, and I can experience what it is to have you as my strength. That's the point of the song. That's why we celebrate. God's people, when we recognize how he's delivered us, we respond with a celebratory song. As a result of what he's done, that's preeminent. We celebrate, and we sing to his power, and secondly, if we can look at verse uh, 13, we sing to of his steadfast love. Few things irritate me more, and one of my buddies from graduate school repeats the trope, you know, that Old Testament God is very angry and he doesn't love the people. You say, you gotta, you gotta read the Bible. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you've redeemed. You say, God is a loving God. That word steadfast love, often very technical term, can mean loyal love, that God keeps his covenant promises. You know, you think about the Israelites, 600,000 men, they're on the one side of the Red Sea. Do you think God redeemed all of them because of their quality of faith? So don't you think of the millions of Israelites that there were some who were more mature in the faith and others who really doubted and others who were... Uh, not in a good place with God at all. In other words, you read the Exodus narrative and you have to, God redeemed the people because he kept his promise. Not because the people were, were, were perfect and earned their way, but rather that God, out of his loyal love, rescued his people and kept his promise. Say, Christian, that's you today, I, I hope, right? Say, God didn't give me a new heart because of how clever I am or because I'm a little bit better than the next guy but rather God said that he would redeem a people for himself, that in his grace, he gave those who are his a new heart, and out of his love that he will keep 
his promise and will lead them. Notice how many times then in the second half of this hymn we get the language of the holy abode. Of course, this means Canaan and Jerusalem in the context, but how wonderful for us. Say, all of us want to belong somewhere in the end. For as much as our generation loves adventure, we all want to be someplace at the end. We, we want a home going. We talk that way. Say, is, are we all going to be together? Everything going to be made right? Is there a place to belong? Say, yes, there is. God will lead in his steadfast love those who are his into his holy abode. There'll be a place to be in the end. I'll close with this. I know my time is short, but you see the tenses from verse 13 too, don't you? Verse 13, past tense, God, you have led us in your steadfast love. You then have a, a pivot really centering on 15 and forward, uh, talking about now the current opposition that's about to face Israel, namely the Edomites and the Moabites, all their current uh, points of stress and then really the present tense is say now God you've got our enemies on their heels and you're going to provide for us now and then the glorious end of the hymn 17 and 18 you will bring them in that is your people and plant them on your mountain the place O Lord which you have made for your abode the sanctuary O Lord which your hands have established the Lord will reign forever and ever you see the three tenses God's delivered us in the past kept his promise perfectly for the trials that we now face that he's going to prove himself faithful and God's going to reign forever and ever and he will he will win the victory for his people you're looking out at a tough year maybe tough couple of months not been a great year maybe in the rear view mirror say don't know all of us in different places you think if you're a Christian how this hymn informs your life to say you know what God You've given me Jesus. I'm in you. You've kept your promises to me. You've provided and protected me, given me a church family. God, you've never let me down and you've never lied. You've always done what you said you're going to do. Past performance giving way to future success. For whatever obstacles you face now, say, may God be your ever-present strength. All those, all those lines about life being very daily, each, trouble, each day having enough trouble of its own. Well, guess what? God in Jesus will be your strength. He will allow you to conquer that which he has ordained, that he will supply you for the task that he has set before you, and he's your ever-present strength. And you know what? No matter what happens, God will reign forever and ever. He's been faithful in the past, strength for the present, guarantee for the future. So I hope that's appropriated for you. Christians, why are we going to sing here in a few minutes? Why do we sing every week? Why, hopefully, even if we're not singing audibly, should the condition of our hearts be one of joyful singing? Why? Because God's delivered us, and we praise him. We sing of his might. We sing of his power. We sing of his love. And in that, we pray that God would use our church family to bring as many possible to know him and that his kingdom uh, might expand. So I'll invite uh, Jim up now as we pray this in. Father, we do um, confess that sometimes even in our singing that we're self-conscious that we are worried about ourselves or we like songs that are about ourselves or we look for an experience or an emotion. Lord, help us to see what's happening here, that there's a real appreciation for you and your character, that you are our strength and our salvation. As a result of that, we celebrate. We have emotion in that sense to say this is wonderful news, that we were once hemmed in, hemmed in by our selfishness, but you reached over that chasm, again, as we'll sing in a minute, the chasm was wide, you reached over and brought us through, delivered us. Help us to sing of your power and your strength. 
And Lord, help us again to sing of your steadfast love, your loyal love, that it's never about our efforts down here, but that you keep your promises. And because of that, we can be devoted to you and obey you all the days of our lives. So, Father, we commit this to you. Help us to be a singing church, as your people have always been singers. We lift you up now, for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing one final song together, church family.